Uh, you're listening to the Channel Futures Podcast. I'm your host, T.C. Doyle. This week, a special edition of the Channel Futures Podcast. I've assembled four different thought leaders from the world of sales and marketing. In this roundtable discussion, which was recorded live during a webinar in May 2018, these four leaders discuss vendor leads, marketing best practices, sales management, and recruiting, vertical market differentiation, and telemarketing, among other things. My guests this week include Stuart Crawford, founder and CEO of Ulistic, Tracy Orisco, president of Managed Sales Pros, Nick Points, director of sales at Chartech LLC, and Ken Thorson, president, Acumen Management. You can read about their bios and find links to the companies in the story that accompanies this podcast. In this episode, the quartet of experts share deep insights, hard-fought lessons, and some funny anecdotes as well. Arisco, for example, tells a funny story about a hot lead that her company received from a prominent vendor. It took a month to chase down and four solid hours of work to sort through. In the end, it turned out that all the customer wanted was a $12 laptop charger. Her takeaway for channel practitioners? Vendor leads are occasional gifts, but hardly a growth strategy. Now, I always say we have a lot packed into this episode, and that's never been more true. I'm grateful to these experts for sharing their time and insights. I hope you enjoy. Let's start the conversation with Stuart Crawford. Stuart, is it better to pursue new customers or invest in the ones you already have? I am a firm believer that you can never go deep enough with an existing customer or client. I actually say client versus customer. Um, and it's much you know for me it's much easier to sell something to somebody who's bought something from me in the past than to try to get uh, uh, you know net going always struggle get new net new business. Now I'm not saying they have net new business isn't a, a necessity. You have to do that. I look at it this way: treat your really good clients extremely well, and that will create a funnel of referral business that will allow you to uh, not have to worry about, uh, you know, where your next leads are going to come from. And then you can have the freedom to experiment and try new things on the marketing side and the sales development side. So I'm a big believer, TC, of, you know, treat your best clients the best you possibly can, uh, you know, and then work with, work with them to get referral business and use that to help feed your, your your prospect and your sales pipeline and then give you that flexibility to to do other and experiment with other marketing and sales tactics. This is Ken. I think the key line there is customer lifetime value. One of the suggestions I would make to the audience is that take and you were talking about Nick the 3-year contract. Take a look at your entire customer base over 3 years or 5 years and say, okay, how much total margin or how much revenue did I get from every customer over three years or five years? I don't care. Either one margin or revenue, I don't care. And rank them if you haven't done that before. And then you'll find that the top 15% of your customers probably do about 65% of your revenue, and the next 20% of your customers do about 20% of your revenue. So 35% of your customers do about 85% of your revenue. What you want to do when you talk about lifetime value and how you're doing your acquisition is, first of all, trying to figure out who you want to acquire. And so once you identify what I call ABC or the A customers, the B customers that make up 85% of your revenue, you want to understand the demographics of those people, size, number of employees, revenue, vertical industry, 
geographic marketplace, then you have an opportunity to say, do I want to go after or who do I want to go after and what type of customers do I want to acquire? I think that is a first good step for an MSP if, if they haven't done it yet to figure out who they want to go after. All right, I want to bring Tracy into the conversation. Let's move ahead to the next question. Uh, word of mouth, local trade events, vendor supplied leads, why aren't these methods enough in today's competitive market or are they enough? So I think this is one question we get asked a lot and I have a really specific great story around vendor leads. So we work with some large well-known vendors and we've done a ton of interesting projects for them, some of them including revenue recovery projects, which essentially means that we go and dig into the leads that none of those partners wanted to touch. There was a lead that took us a month to chase down in the first project with this vendor for a very large prominent company, and they filled out a form on their vendor site, and the vendor sent it to, to us and said, hot lead. Turns out after four hours of work later, they wanted a $12 laptop charger. So vendor leads can be great, word of mouth leads, they're excellent, but they're gifts. They're not a business development strategy for us, and they shouldn't be for you. If you're not generating your own pipeline, you're going to lose a year's full of opportunity for every quarter that you're not adding new leads. So vendors don't owe them to you. Partners don't owe you referrals. You need an internal process that keeps your pipeline full. It helps you avoid the feast and famine result from relying on other people to grow your business. You need to take control of your own business. It's your job not theirs. Nick, I think you're going to weigh in. Yeah, no, I was just going to echo. I, I, I completely agree. Um, the referrals, you know, you have your relationships with your vendors, and, and you got to make sure that it gets, it's a two-way street, guys, with our vendors. So if we're worried about not, we're not getting enough leads from them, I mean, let's ask how many leads have we passed over ourselves, right? So it goes both ways, but absolutely, we're very big in having multiple marketing strategies going at once, right? I want to have 3x in my funnel at all times uh, on the top versus what I need to come out the bottom here every single month. That's kind of a, a goal that we, we try to follow here at our MSP. Stuart, does that work? Do those metrics work for you? Oh, yeah, I 100% agree with uh, Nick's uh, metrics there. And uh, I'll add, you know, vendor supply leads, are not, those are just gravy, you know. Um, that's like mashed potatoes with the, you know, with gravy on top. That, that's, it's a, it's good. You can get them and it tastes better, but, uh, I wouldn't rely on them for any real nourishment of your business. The, um, so I, I agree. You have to have a multiple, multiple streams of opportunity coming in and that goes to, you know, telesales, telemarketing, business to business networking, passive website, uh, SEO, uh, everything you can possibly think of. I, I kind of relate marketing to playing golf. You have there's 14 different strategies you can go with, and you have 14 different clubs in your golf bag for a reason. Not everyone fits every you know every time you every every place and every sh shot. But uh, it's nice to have that flexibility to take out your wedge at 60 yards instead of having to hit your nine iron. Yeah. So let's talk about the the vendor leads themselves because I have a question teed up, but it's probably more appropriate to ask it now. And please, you guys can weigh in on that. You know, some partners I talk to, you know, a scant 5% of their business, if that, comes from vendors' leads. Some are way over-rotated, at least in my view, uh, as much as 20 to 30% of their business is coming from. Is there a healthy margin? Is there a risk when you're over-rotated on, uh, depending upon leads from vendors and, and others? As you see, if I can jump in first, and then I'll flip it over to everybody else. Um, my experience running my own MSP, you know, I sold that business 10 years ago. It's hard to believe. 
But, uh, you know, we were probably close to that 20 to 30% of vendor supply leads, and I'll tell you why. Wow. Uh, there's a gentleman in the channel by the name of Armin Sorensen. I'm sure everybody knows him, and I was part of his HCG peer group back in the day. And Armin taught me the valuable lesson of building relationships with my vendor sales reps and my vendor partners uh, to the point where I understood exactly when they were compensated. And if I was buying from Microsoft or Dell or Tech Data or Ingram or whatever, my, I knew when my rep was going to be compensated for that. So I built loyal relationships with them that when an opportunity came in, and I know they're not supposed to play favorites, but since I was understanding how they're going to be paid and I could close that business, it, there was a natural flow of that um, lead over to us. I think what a lot of IT service organizations treat their vendor relationships like is, what have you done for me lately instead of what can I do to help you? And I think that's where you know you can you can get a better opportunity from your vendors. Now, to answer your question about risk. There's definitely risks in everything that you do, you know. So I would, you know, you don't want to be uh, too focused on and have too many of your leads come from one source. That's why I call the 14, you know, the 14 approaches your marketing plan. But uh, you know, if you have a healthy balance across all of them, then if one kind of dries up a little bit, then you have the other 13 to pick up on. Yeah, I think what everybody's echoing here is that partnerships a two-way street. So Nick mentioned it, Stuart's now mentioned it. It's not. You're right. Just about what do they do for you? It's how can you help them grow? We know that every time we engage heavier with one of our vendors, we're going to see return on that, but we have to be willing to put our money on the table, to put our expertise on the table for that vendor as well. Ken, anything to add on that? Well, I think I would go back to what I said earlier, is that the vendor leads are great. As Stuart said, they're gravy, but they're, you have to have the relationship. The challenge is, do I want the vendor lead? Uh, because that vendor lead may be great for me, or it may be a low-cost, low-value buyer, and I don't want those. Those are my C kind of customers. I only want A's and B's. I want people who fit my demographics, and they may not be tailored to me. So I have to be very care careful about that because they're a great lead, and I'm going to have salespeople chasing them, but they, not, they aren't chasing the right people that I want them to sell, who aren't going to buy my value buy my three-year contract, buy my added service capabilities. And so I, I, I'm really leery of that, and that's why I think you have to build a better campaign. If I could only hit my uh, pitching wedge, I'd be fine, Stuart. You know, we have a, we have a, we have a, we have a thing in a realistic for that, Ken. It's called pumpkin planning, and I'm sure if anybody – there's a great book by uh, Michael McCallowitz, which is a former MSP himself. Um, highly recommend that. But, yeah, well, that's – you know, that's chasing your A's and B's clients and knowing what they look like is crucial. And you're right. Some of those vendor supply liens might be just utter C-class garbage that you don't want to take on anyways because it's going to rob you of all your valuable time to go prospecting for A's and B's. I was just, I was just going to say, you know, Ken, to your point, it, it, the first part about it, everyone that's listening, is you, is you do have to understand who your ideal client demographic is. So first and foremost, if you don't have that, you need to, that's what you need to figure out for yourselves, right? Figure out your smack recipe. And then you can better help set expectations with your vendors, right? Hey, thanks so much for passing the lead. I uh, really appreciate it, you know. But here's kind of where I'm looking at, you know, we provide the best value for our clients if they meet these criteria. Because, yeah, the last thing you want to do is spend your time and effort and money and resources chasing down opportunity and following up that 
you know, if it's taking away from you actually catering to your clients, growing your existing client base, generating referrals, other marketing initiatives, whatever that may be. Jesse, you guys help build a pipeline every day. What are partners doing right in terms of building their pipeline? What could they be doing better? And give us some of your observations and experiences. Sure. So when I look at this question, I'm always relating this back to personal experience. For those of you that know me, you know I'm a runner. And when you are training for a race, albeit a marathon, a half marathon, you don't stop and start. One of the pieces that we take our prospective clients and our actual clients through is consistency and patience. I think that very often partners are trying something for a quarter. They don't get immediate results. They abandon the idea or they abandon the provider saying this didn't work. Then they sit on it for six months trying to decide what they might do next. They pick something else, they move to another marketing partner, they start over, and they do the same process again 90 days later. So they're constantly throwing their money away and not getting the traction in the market. So for our programs to generate the type of ROI that they do, it takes a year or more. So customers or clients that are building a strong pipeline, whatever they're doing, whether it's us or someone else, they're choosing to stay the course. That's something that we can't recommend more times than we do. It is the piece that makes it work. Whatever you're doing, stay the course. This is Ken. I I think you're right. One of the things we've seen over the years is that partners cannot or do not generate a consistent rolling six-month marketing plan. Uh, So one of the first things we try to get them to do is develop, okay, what are our campaigns? What's the messaging? But what are we going to do? today, what are we going to do in four months, what are you doing in five months, what are you doing in six months, and build a rolling kind of campaign and be consistent with their approach. Uh, so you're right. We have a, a little program we, we try to suggest, depending upon the client, called the 2020 plan, where every week, every salesperson does 20 emails, 20 postcards, 20 direct mail pieces to 20 people. And then they, next week, they follow up with them. Uh, and they send them a second piece, and then the third week they finally pick up the phone and call them. So it's two direct mail pieces and then a phone call. So it's every week there's a consistency. So the salespeople are doing something, but the corporate entity is doing some campaigns. So I think sticking to it is really the consistency that partners are not doing well at, but they need to do better at. Nick, weigh in on this, and then uh, Stuart, you can pick up, uh, take us to a close yeah. on this question too. Yeah, I'm going to echo the consistency. That's the biggest challenge that we see. We we start, stop. We're not, you know, we may send out, someone will send out a thousand direct mail pieces and just sit there wait, thinking that their fortune is going to come to them. But here's another challenge. If we're not consistent in our efforts and whether we're doing a certain amount of calls and a touching a certain amount of people, if we're not consistently doing this, we're not going to be predictable. And here's the challenge that the majority of the EMSPs we work with is we're doing, we're wearing a lot of hats. We're doing the marketing, we're doing the sales, we're supporting our clients, we're working on operations, we're running the business. And so I see it time and time again where if we're not consistent, we may overclub in the marketing or, or we're running to that side of the ship because our leads dried out and we didn't have anything coming and the next thing you know we got an influx and then now we're, 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 we're backed up on our sales opportunities, we're not able to get to everything, our client satisfaction is suffering because we're not able to support our clients and we're constantly running around with the chicken with our head cut off and a lot of that is just because we haven't been consistent in in what in, you know in efforts that we're we're taking. So it kind of snowballs into other areas if we really want to think about it as a holistic approach too, and why it's so important to just just maintain course, right? And then you know if you need to turn this dial or turn this dial, but if you're not consistent, you won't be able to 
to make those predictions. Nick, you're right. This is Ken. That's why the 2020 plan that I talked about works because it's by salesperson, only 20 pieces of mail go out one week. The second week, another 20 pieces go out, and then there's a phone call to follow up and trace those people. You're not doing the email blast, the 1,000-piece blast. You're just consistent hitting 20 people a week, and it has time for the salesperson then to follow up, follow up, and follow up and try to get activity. So, yeah, it's, it's really that consistency and that stay the course is really the issue. Microsoft and others have done some studies that indicate that the most successful partners spend upwards of 10% or more of revenue on marketing. Yet investments of just 2 or 3%, I think, Stuart, you've seen that. I think Chartech has seen that, are so common. Why are partners so conservative and so wrong with their limited marketing spend? Maybe, Stuart, you can pick it up, and we'll go to uh, Nick next. So I call it the silver bullet theory. They expect that one thing is going to hit a home run, and uh, and that's why they're conservative with their marketing. Or, and we see this, and we see this with a lot of businesses that are run by the owner is also, you know, the decision maker. For example, doctors, lawyers, accountants, those type of uh, vertical markets as well. If you're going to take it out of one pocket. Um, and MSPs have the same challenge, and IT service companies have the same challenge when we're talking about them investing in technology. Why won't they invest in technology? Uh, you know, they need it, and, but they won't invest in it. And when you're talking to doctors and lawyers and those folks, then I turn around and say, well, why won't you invest in marketing? It's the same reason. You're taking money. You know, they'll go spend $100,000 on a car, but they won't spend, you know, $20,000 on an event uh, to promote their business so they can buy two cars. You know, I just, it's, I think it's a little bit of small company syndrome as well as, you know, being overly cautious. But, you know, it's, we can have the same argument, TC, on why companies should go vertical instead of being horizontal. You know, well, when the proof is in the pudding that companies that go vertical like mine, you know, when I ran my own MSP, you know, we were 100% in on oil and gas, and we grew to a $5.5 million MSP in seven years. Now, not everybody's going to have those same results, but most companies that I know that are, you know, investing in marketing and investing in a single market consistently outperform their peers who are broad in spectrum, in their spectrum of, you know, their marketing efforts and sales efforts, and don't put the capital outlay into the right, in the quote-unquote right marketing strategies. Uh, they'll spend money on the bad stuff all the time, but they won't invest their money on the right stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's my theory. That's my theory. Um, I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but it seems to work. It seems to have worked for me. And I'll let you flip it over to whoever, whoever else is next. So when we started our business, again, it comes back for us to stay the course. Budget and marketing every year. Stick with it. If it's slow, ramp it up. But honestly, you've got to understand you've got to invest, right? To make money, you have to spend money. The first year of business for us, we put our IT Nation investment on our CEO's personal credit card. We knew that we needed to do IT Nation to launch our business in a big way. We took the risk. We worked our butts off for the next six months to make sure that that investment paid for itself. I think that's the part that maybe MSPs don't always correlate. If you're going to spend the money, you better be doing the work to back it up. And that doesn't only mean the partner you've joined up with does the work. It means you've got a ton of work to make sure that payback is going to happen. If you do the work, that's going to happen. As they say, if you build it, they will come. Vic, please weigh in. 
Yeah, like I, I think you guys are right on. I think the uh, big, I mean, if we were thinking about the budgeting and and what percentage, I mean, that's definitely going to vary about what you want more of. But the majority of the, of the again, the MSPs that we work with, they're not marketing experts. <laughs> they grew their business because they had a passion for technology. They started the company themselves, working with friends and family. And the next thing you know, they have employees and they have a business. But they're not marketing experts, so they don't know. They haven't been either, you know, horrible at tracking <laughs> ROI, and so they so they're very gun shy on investing any amount of money if they don't know what the return's going to be. I mean, I'd be I'd be a scared too, right? Um, but we're they're not we're not trying things. We're not consistent, and sometimes we set unreasonable goals. I mean, if we've never you had marketing initiatives before, you know, maybe seven to ten percent is not going to be enough because we've never we've never budgeted. We've never had marketing efforts, so maybe we want to club that up a little bit. Maybe it's 12 to 14, again, depending on on the growth. But then there's also that other side, which we have to be um, cautious of, of what can we support. So I've, I have seen that as well, where they will overclub in the marketing, and I'm going to budget this much, and then they're not able to keep up with the opportunity. And, and it's just, again, that's that snowballing effect. So I think I think the first thing is to, like, like Trace said, you've got to invest – but we got to make sure that we're also tracking too and understanding where our money is best utilized. So then we can figure. Cause I agree with Stuart as well. There's no silver bullet, so we have to try multiple different things. But people get discouraged and and their marketing efforts don't work. I don't want to spend anything on it. I'd rather take my clients to lunch, you know, type of mentality. Okay, I want to go to Tracy here with a question specifically about call centers. We're going to jump ahead to a couple of these. Uh, I've had good success using call centers to help build a pipeline. How can I use outside telemarketing more effectively and what pratfalls should I look for? So one thing that we talk a lot about here is that outsourced calling isn't magic. What we do, while it's efficient and it's well performing, it's not magic. It's a temporary solution that's really built to solve a problem that eventually you're going to solve yourself. Nobody does outsource telemarketing forever, but it's going to bring you immediacy and volume. It delays the inevitable, which is I'm going to eventually have a warm list that I'm going to have to call. But if you're never going to learn how to build and manage your sales process, you're not going to be as successful with a company like ours in learning how to build your sales process and then learning how to execute it in-house. So outsourced telemarketing is a really good solution for a couple of years. And in those couple of years, you should be investing in building the sales machine that's going to grow your business for the next five years. And I think that that's how companies can use telemarketing more effectively. Invest in the program during the few years that you're doing it with a company. So when we talk about pitfalls, you want to look for things like contracts you can't get out of, a lack of transparency in the process. You want to worry about companies that promise you that they can achieve results no matter what. If it sounds too good to be true, it, honestly, it always is. Nobody guarantees a certain number of buy-ready leads available in your market at any given time because nobody knows if they even exist. The best sales call in the world can't win business in a displacement market. It doesn't matter how good your team is and how consistent they are. If that company is in an ironclad contract for the next two years, you still have to wait your turn. And so if you invest in learning how to make the sales process move forward while someone is doing that cold calling from, for you, that's the best effective use of telemarketing. Actually, the webinar I just came off of was all about making the most of your first appointment. So, as you know, as Tracy's team, they're, they're following out on campaigns, they're generating interest, right? They're getting these appointments booked. 
then at that point, we don't rely on Tracy and her team to sell for you, right? It's they're, they're following your recipe for success. They're calling down into the, you know, based on your intake form of what you deem an ideal client is, which goes back to talking about what, what Ken brought up. It's extremely important. But then it's up to you guys, right? So if you don't have a sales process in place, there's no amount of money that you're going to spend in marketing or telemarketing to you know, get all these at-bats if you're just burning your leads as well. So make sure that you have a proper appointment uh, setting process, right, and, and to be able to get that the rest of the way down through the sales funnel and not get upset with, with Tracy and the team because when you showed up for that appointment, they didn't have a blank check and a, and a pre-signed agreement ready to go for you. <laughs> That's not the point. Right? Yeah. So ha- have that identified process. So let's shift a little sales management, sales leadership, sales recruiting. I'm going to go to Ken first because I know this is a question he spent some time on. He's talked to partners that have literally said to him, I just named my number one salesperson to be head of sales or head of sales management. Well, Ken, what could possibly go wrong with that? Well, when I, when I saw the question pop up, I thought of Le- LeBron James or Michael Jordan. <laughs> uh, you know, those people were naturally or trained to be high performers, but they probably don't have the patience to coach, the patience to work with people who are not as good as them, because generally the number one performer does certain things naturally, and things come to them, they have the outgoing relationship, they understand how to read people, they've done the training, and they can do it. But then along comes Ken Thorson, and he's kind of stumbling around, and they don't have the patience to put up with me. Uh, so hiring your number one <clears throat> number one salesperson to be a sales manager generally happens that those people can't coach. They have a attitude about I'll get it done. They try to close every deal. They they're on top of everything, <clears throat> and they're not there. <clears throat> excuse me, they're not there to bring the people along. So that's the problem with with that particular situation is that you need people who can coach, who can follow a process. Because what you really do in sales management is take your A players, who are your number one salesperson, your Michael Jordan, the LeBron James, and let them go play. But your real job is to take those C-plus people and make them a B-minus or a B-plus person or the B people to make them a B-plus person. And that's coaching, training, um, really working with people to make them better. And very few A players have that capability. So you're really involved in saying, how do I want to grow my organization? And that's a whole other issue. That's why my first book that I wrote, of the five I wrote, was all around recruiting a high-performance sales team because that's the number one problem all partners have. I had it when I was working for a partner. I had it when I was a vice president of sales running a channel organization. And over the last 20 years of coaching partners, I see that every day. Uh, just hiring quality people becomes a number one problem. I'm, I'm going to say just add on to that. I mean, the big challenge, too, is you promote your A player in there, and, and nobody wants to be unsuccessful, especially if they're used to having success. So then you, now you risk the, the chance of now you, just, now you lost your number one salesperson because they were in the wrong seat on the bus. <laughs> and then, then think about the impact of the business, right? Exactly, exactly. I want to move ahead to the next question, and maybe, Stuart, I'll start with you. And, Ken, I know you'll have some thoughts on this. I'm a partner. I've tried everything to build a cohesive, loyal sales team. I've toyed with comp plans, rewards, revenue recognition, et cetera. And why do I wind up hiring so many nonproductive sales professionals? 
what MSPs, when they go hiring a sales professional, they they look in the mirror and try to get somebody like the one, the person that they're looking at in the mirror. And I think that's the biggest mistake first. You need to hire people who have proven success. And sometimes that may not align with your belief system, but it's it is the right way to, to right way to go. Go ahead, Ken. You're much better qualified to answer this question than I am. The uh, the second book I wrote was on sales compensation, uh, TC. So I I think this is important. We like to suggest you would need to identify the five work experiences you're going to hire and the five well, I would say personality styles you're looking for for the for the job you have. And we have a whole process in our, in the book about how you go through interviewing, what questions they ask, how you onboard people. All of that's quite important. But one of the reasons people have non-productive salespeople is the salespeople, number one, weren't onboarded right, aren't trained right, but more importantly, they don't believe. And one of the issues that most people miss as an executive in any size organization is the emotional aspect of leadership. The emotional aspect of sales leadership is really getting your salespeople to believe in what products or services you are delivering and getting that emotional bond that what I'm doing as a salesperson makes a difference, not to me in commission, but to what I do for the client and what our company does for that client. Uh, so you know, we talk about disaster recovery, we can talk about whatever, but getting them to believe in what the whole solution is, is an important aspect. And there's another whole hour we could spend on how do you build culture in a company, how do you build belief in a company, but part of the reason people are unproductive is they just think they're pushing products or they're pushing services. They don't really have the passion for what we do. No, I in hey, this is Nick. Please. Yeah, I, 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 on 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 that topic, Ken's absolutely right, guys. Um, what we see, because we we work with MSPs again all over the all over the country, we help them hire and, and train uh, sales uh, professionals. One of the first things is where we where we spot failure is like like Stuart said they they're wanting to look in the mirror and so we're very big proponents on DISC it's personality assessment there's Myers Briggs just tons of them out there right I want to make sure that the person the candidates we're looking at have the right DNA first and foremost I can train somebody on product and process but I can't train them on being outgoing right being a people person that's just not in their DNA they'll burn out very very quickly the second piece of it and and to, to to highlight what Ken was saying is we fail on training. If a salesperson is not successful, I'm typically going to blame leadership. Either we failed to train them on what needs to be done, set the proper expectations up front, or we failed to get them out of the company. And, and it sounds kind of harsh, but when we put a salesperson in place, we have a very rigid training program, 30, 45 days, where all they're doing is learning. They're not talking to clients. They're not prospecting. They don't even admit they work for the company. And I do this because I want to, again, I'm setting expectations, but I'm also putting in a method where I can spot failure early on. I either want to identify I've got a rock star or I want to spot failure and, and, and get them out of that process early so I can find the next person versus keeping someone on salary for six months, eight months, 12 months, and hoping they get that deal in, right? And then we start justifying in our own head by saying, oh, gosh, I've already been paying them for eight months. You know, they say they're close. You know, they say that every month, but, you know, what's one more month? And the next thing you know, you go a year without making a sell. And the only sell they ever made was for you to hire them. So you've got to have that training program and that process in place. Hold them accountable to it. Do not bring somebody on and have them develop it for you. <laughs> You're going no, to be in a world that, of hurt. 
I, you're absolutely right there. In in the book, we have a three-week onboarding process that we designed. And what I found is that in the first week, if the salesperson we hired has not completed like 75% of the tasks that are defined for them to do, red flag goes up. In the second week, if they're not uh, better than that, a super red flag flies up because those people will never make it. And then you can track revenue by month and a lot of other metrics we don't have time to get into, but you're absolutely right, Nick. That's mm-hmm. Paying close attention to that new hire with an onboarding process, a training process, and validation process is key. One of the things we do is at the end of three weeks, if that new salesperson can't stand up in front of the president of the company and sell the organization using a PowerPoint, value propositions, everything, then they got to go back to training. You put pressure on those wow. people in the first three weeks to see what they're doing. Tracy, you want to say something on that? I was just telling Ken, I'm totally going to steal that. But I think what you guys are all saying is what we believe at Managed Sales Pros too. I don't think you, you don't buy sales reps, right? You build them. So even the worst sales rep can lie their way into the interview process and through it and maybe get hired. But Ken's just really identified clearly, if they can't hit their targets, we're a fail-fast company. We don't hire a ton of sales reps because of what we do, but our sales rep was built from the ground up. We stole him completely out of the ocean of all places, and we built him into what we needed because we saw that he had a skill, not because he came to us saying, I am the best thing since sliced bread, look at my skill set. We identified him, we built him, and we didn't have to undo all his bad habits. All right, I want to bring Stuart in for one last question, then we're going to go to the lightning round. When you see organizations, how are they differentiating themselves? How are they, what are the better ways? And is it through verticalization? Is it through picking a function or a customer segment? Give us your thoughts on that. All right, so some, some people, I'm going to preface this by some people are not going to like or agree with what I'm going to say here, TC, but that's, uh, that's too bad because I'm living proof that it does work this way. If you want to make some serious money in this industry, become a specialist in what you do. You can't be, make a ton of money and be, you know, the jack of all trades. Um, so we were specialists in the oil and gas market. We knew everything to do with the oil and gas market in the city of Calgary and the province of Alberta back in, when I was living in Canada. We knew everything. We sent our text to an oil and gas school at the community college so we can understand what the little dots on the map meant when we're talking to an engineer or a ge- geophysicist. We knew what every role was. What the result was? When we went into a competitive head-to-head against two or three other managed service providers at the time, we were traditionally, and this back in the hour, we were still charging hourly rates back at that time, we were still $25, $50, $75 an hour more than our, than our competitors, and we got the deal. Why? Because we were specialists. We understood the market. We knew people. We knew how to open up doors. We knew the software vendors. We knew the techs that serviced the software vendors. We knew everybody. We knew the associations that they belonged to. That's when you become a true specialist. And Pumpkin Plan talks about that as well in that book. And, you know, Ulistic today only focuses on MSPs. We don't do software companies. We don't do, we don't do cabling companies. We only work with MSPs. So we specialize in one market yet again. Um, there's four areas, TC, and I'll hand it back over to you that you could specialize in. One is in the vertical market, so pick an industry. Uh, second one is 
a role in an organization. Maybe you become the IT person that you know, understands accounting systems like the back of your hand and work with CFOs and controllers and accounting departments. Or you can specialize in a technology. Maybe you're the Cisco expert. Maybe you are a firewalling specialist, security, backup and disaster recovery, whatever it is. And the fourth one is maybe you become an expert in a certain geography. Uh, maybe you only work with companies in your city. So in Calgary, when we are there, and some people may know Calgary really well, we're the only gas specialist, but we only worked in the downtown core. So your postal code had to start with T2P. If it started with T2R, uh, we handed that off to another to a competitor because it was outside of our geography boundaries. We didn't want we we didn't want to be the BL Expo extra. We actually wanted to be. If we are on this LRT line, and the LRT in Calgary where we were was free downtown, and we had to pay the buck twenty-five to get on the train, uh, we really thought long and hard about taking that on. So I'm a huge advocate for going vertical in every market. Did we start there? Of course not. Of course not. We didn't start as a vertical company to start with, but as soon as we got our ground and our legs underneath us, we ditched all of our non-oil and gas clients and went purely oil and gas. And I tell you, the revenue skyrocketed almost a million dollars that year. I just want to echo that. When I ran a channel, we ran all our horizontal partners and we trained them all vertical and the business soared. If you're in the cloud of any sort, you got to go vertical. you got to go vertical. I've got a quick question for Nick, and then we're going to go to the commercials at the end. How you know the big idea that I promised everybody? We're going to go uh, start with Stuart, and then go to Tracy, then Nick, and then finish up with Ken on their big idea, but also a little bit about their business. Nick, quick question for you has come in: question-based selling. What is it? How can people get more information? Wayne has a good comment that leads us into us. Most firms do not ask the correct type of questions for sales professional. They don't understand how to identify talent and how it can be groomed. So what is question-based selling? you got a minute. Please take us through it. Yeah, so that's, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, so question-based selling, it's, it's a book by the author Thomas Fries. Okay, It's a great read. In fact, Chartech uh, and our MSP, we've adopted it as our, our sales methodology. We've actually licensed it from Tom to, to do our training, so it's kind of funny that it was brought up. But the, the goal here, it's not – there's a, it's a, I mean, we could talk for hours <laughs> on this topic, but the secrets of question-based selling is not about how many questions that you ask. It's more about the types of questions you ask that are going to lead to credibility. Okay, and so being vertical, uh, knowledgeable, understanding how people make money, being selfish to their individual job roles, right, and speaking and asking questions that are relevant to them. Right? Is, it, uh, is an example, you're going to go into the, uh, a business and talk to the receptionist about their servers or their workstations. It's not relevant to them. It's not a credible question, but more specifically to maybe call quality, things along those lines that they'll get to open up and share. The whole premise of the book is about differentiating yourself through the questions and the process that you conduct and getting people to open up and share. That is the most strategic part of the sales process. We're going to go to the lightning round. We're going to start first with our friend Stuart Crawford, longtime uh, expert here who contributes with us. Stuart, your three best services you provide to the community, how they can get a hold of you, and your big idea. If you could leave them with one thought, what would it be? 
All right, so I'm going to, my big idea is marketing is not a quick home run. It is a journey that you have to go on forever. It never, it never ends. Best three services that we offer to our clients are our online marketing. We're experts in search optimization, web marketing, uh, social media marketing. Uh, we also, uh, I also serve as the chief marketing officer for a number of uh, small to mid-sized MPs. And I guess I need one more. Uh, we have a great team in Florida here that's ready to take care of where we specialize in MSPs, so content and everything is all professionally done for the managed service business. And to get a hold of me, Ulistic.com, or you can drop me an email. I'll just give you info at Ulistic.com because it comes to me directly, info at Ulistic.com. I think that was quick enough, ATC. That was well done, my friend. Tracy, let's go to you, Manage Sales Pros. Same question. So appointment setting, that's our core crux for MSPs. Stay the course, take the time, get it done right. We do a ton of online training now, so if you want to learn how to do it yourself, we can help you do that. We're not going to hide our knowledge. The biggest thing I want to leave you with in, in services is our call answer program. Pick up the phone, you guys. Call me and talk about what happens when you're not answering your phones. But one of the things that I wanted to talk real quick about at the end here is that this is perfect timing for us to talk about the intersection between sales and marketing. We've just launched a brand new offering with Generate Marketing that ties both of those things together. We've got a new thought leadership prospecting program that's going to offer MSPs what we really believe the market's been missing, highly engaged, custom content delivered to already qualified prospects. As our partners grow and their businesses mature, we're really seeing the need for that custom thought leadership solution. We, didn't, we don't want you sending vague syndicated content to anybody. We didn't jump in the market before because we really wanted to do it right, and now we're partnering with a uh, new industry communications expert to do that. So reach out to us. Um, hello at is the easiest way to get us. That comes right to me. Take a look at our blog. Head over to our website. Thanks for your time today. Perfect. Uh, Nick? Yeah, guys. So uh, again, Nick points with with Chartech here. Much like Stuart, our vertical niche is working with MSPs. You know, so using the successes that we found with our own MSP as well as all of our partners all over the all over the globe, our core focus is helping our industry MSPs remove the barriers that unfortunately our industry also creates that restrict our growth potential, profitability, uh, and scalability for our organizations. And in a lot of different ways in which we can help out from building strategy together, um, opening up and, and doing training and just sharing our knowledge, as Tracy mentioned. Um, the big idea I want to leave everyone with, and it's just so simple, but yet it's, it's rarely done, is your big idea is going to be execution. Stop thinking about something. Stop trying to plan it out to be perfect. Take action. Do something execute, make a plan, and uh, here's, a, here's a little uh, gift uh, as it relates to execution. We have our training events. Three days we open up our MSP. We share all of our best practices, processes, procedures from sales to marketing, service delivery, operations. Our events June 13th through 15th. And for everyone on this webinar, TC, I'm going to make it available as a guest pass. It's, only real, it's for Chartech members only, but if you're not a Chartech member, if you're on this webinar, I will extend you a guest pass to come out and attend so you can start executing. Well, Ken, the bar is high. It's time for you to take us <laughs> to a close, my friend. Well, my big idea would be to take your top 10 customers and do a power network with them and understand what organizations they're involved in, uh, what golf courses they go to, what business organizations they go to, map it out so when you're talking to a prospect, 
you can find out if you have a customer you can connect with. But our organization, Acumen Management, interesting enough, our tagline is building organizations through the execution of strategic sales management uh, because that tends to be a weak link in a lot of organizations. We offer an eight-week online self-paced training program for sales managers called Boot Camp Slammed. We also provide a whole variety of tools for sales managers as well as a whole lot of other programs. So you can find us at acumenmanagement.com, acumenmanagement.com. Perfect. Well, I want to thank everyone for attending and a special thanks out to Stuart Crawford, Realistic, Tracy Risco Managed Sales Pro, Nick Points at Chartech, Ken Thornton at Acumen Management. So big thanks to everybody and especially to Rick and Jen Liz, our organizers. And of course, let's not forget our sponsor, Dano. Thank you everyone for your time. Here's hoping you enjoyed this episode of the Channel Futures Podcast. Hey, if you'd like to be a guest on an upcoming episode or have a comment, drop me a line. That's tc.doyle at knect365.com. Knect365 is the division at Informa that includes Channel Futures and our colleagues over at Channel Partners. For more episodes, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or check us out on SoundCloud. As always, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.